and my heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, when thou comest and callest for me. I hope that that is something that you can say this morning. That's what we're talking about today, um, the nature of Christ's coming. We, within the scope of the, what we might call the Christmas messages this year, I've attempted to remain locked in on that final theme which we introduced toward the end of 2 Timothy. Uh, the banner was how to handle conflict, but it will, really went much farther than that. Uh, more broadly reminded us of three important elements of the Christian life and of Christian interaction, namely humility, forgiveness, and truth. And so last week we considered together Jesus' humble birth, recognizing how important the nature of his birth, not just that he was born, but this nature, this humble birth was, not just painting uh, uh, the, the reality of the incarnation, but in the contrast to the way that the world would recognize power, would recognize dignity, would recognize honor, and the honor that God gave to the Son, to his family, uh, and, and throughout Christ's life on the basis of his humility. And then in the evening message, we considered Christ's forgiveness through his death, a common theme surrounding Christmas, naturally, and that Jesus was born uh, as a means unto an end, born that he might live, live that he might die, die that we might live, securing our salvation with his own blood on the cross of Calvary. Well, that only leaves truth. And truth is what I want to talk about today. In a way, we've covered the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. We might as well round it out by talking about his sure return. And this is a topic that is perhaps heavy on the hearts of many in this time, as was mentioned earlier, of national distress. In these times when there is trouble, our minds always turn towards the thoughts of Christ's sure return. Because when we come face to face with suffering, injustice, lies, deceits, when we are reminded of just how evil and how very broken the world is, uh, we become in the, those moments, uh, for those who are in Christ, for we who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, for those among you who can claim that, you become homesick for heaven. And earnest, eager for that day when Jesus Christ will right every wrong, where the lies will be put down and truth will prevail, where there will be the opportunity for justice to be done in a way that justice is rarely done, on this earth. So let's remember our hope of glory this morning. Let's rest our minds upon the sure return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not going to be a heavily technical sermon this morning. If you want the technical side of Christ's return, again, I've got an entire series in Revelation that got quite technical, and you can listen to that online, podcast, uh, YouTube, whatever you'd like to do, and you can get all of those theological details and the possible order of events and such. Today's sermon is intended to be more practical. It's not going to be one uh, that in any, in any uh, um, heavy way is going to be uh, um, one that's going to strain your mental capacities or anything of the sort. But we're just going to consider and be reminded that Jesus is coming again. And he's coming quickly. His rewards are with him. He's coming to reign in righteousness. And he's coming to bring truth. So let's begin by establishing this reality. First, we talk about the reality that Jesus 
is coming again. The Bible is a unified book. We could walk through the promises of the coming of Messiah going all the way back to the book of Genesis. But again, this isn't a technical study, and of course it would take us significantly more than one sermon, even at the length I preach them, in order to get through all of the promises and all of the, to, to trace through the nature of Christ's coming, uh, even, even just in a survey fashion. It would take us much longer than we have together this morning. So I'm not going to walk through all of those indicators throughout history of God's promises to send Messiah. I'm not going to walk through the prophetic indicators of the mysteries of Messiah's coming that would take place, uh, that, that he would come and, and, and he would uh, die and then he would come again. And all of the prophetic indicators of a twofold coming of the Messiah, that which the church has coined as Christ's first and second advents. But really, we're just going to keep things simple today. Considering that Christ is coming, considering the promise of his coming, and I'd like us to just go to the source. John 12 through 17 is some of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. In John 12 through 17, we find also some of the most detailed and personal interaction we have in the Bible between Jesus and those who followed him. We often see Jesus talking to his disciples. We see him interacting with groups of people. But in John 12 through 17, things become significantly more intimate. Particularly chapters 14, 15, 16, 17. Jesus is speaking very personally, very directly. But the neat thing about it is that it becomes apparent very quickly that when Jesus is speaking to the, the, those disciples in this very personal way, he's not just speaking to them. He's referencing them in relation to all those who would come after them, including all of those in this generation who have followed the gospel, who have followed Jesus Christ into that crucified life by grace through faith, including, if you have done that, you this morning. Jesus was speaking well beyond the people who were listening in that day and directly into the ears of all those who would follow him in every generation. And so this pa these passages of Scripture are not just personal to the disciples in, of that day, but they ought to be able to be very personal to you and I as well. And I'm going to take you to John 14 as it relates to this reality that Jesus is coming again. You are perhaps familiar with the passage of Scripture, a wonderful promise Jesus makes to his followers. John 14, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus began these words with, let not your hearts be troubled. Now again, Jesus is speaking here directly to those who have followed him. He's speaking here directly to those who have taken up their cross and followed him. In our day, we recognize the Bible says this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, I cannot uh, follow a man on this earth in that way. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He has not returned. I cannot follow Jesus in that physical, literal sense today because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And yet when Jesus came to earth, he laid down teachings and principles. They have been written in a book. 
They have been given to us by eyewitness accounts and then continued through Christ's apostles, the inspired word of God, so that everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus was, everything that Jesus taught that he wants us to know is contained in the word of God. So if I want to follow Jesus, I don't have to have him standing before me. He has given us a more sure word of prophecy, Peter says. Peter, he who heard on the Mount of Transfiguration those very words, this is my beloved son, hear him. Peter says, I saw that glory for myself. My eyes witnessed it, but you, he said in 1 Peter, you have a more sure word, something more reliable than my eyewitness account in the word of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because we've sinned, we have been separated from the holiness of God. Because the wages of sin, Romans chapter 6 tells us, is death. Now, death is a physical thing. When we think of death, we think of our bodies ceasing to function. More specifically, as it would relate to the afterlife, the idea of our, our, our immaterial part of us leaving the material part of us. But the concept of death is, is more broad than that. The concept of death is actually simply the concept of separation. When we physically die, yes, our immaterial separates from our material. But when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, the Bible says they died. And yet they were still breathing. Their hearts were still beating. But they were separated, spiritually separated from God in that moment. They were, the sin came between them and God, God being holy, them now being sinful, so that they could not have a thriving personal fellowship with God, the, the thriving personal fellowship that God had designed. And so God so loved the world that in this place of separation, where I cannot earn my way back to God, I cannot work my way back to God, I cannot buy my way back to God, I can never become good enough for God because I have already sinned, I have already become marred, unholy. God sent his son Jesus Christ to do for me what I could not do for myself. Now in John 14, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's not there yet, but he would. And as he would hang on that cross, the Bible says that God the Father would take your sin and my sin and make Jesus Christ sin for us. He would pour out his wrath for sin on Christ. He would, he would place our sins on Christ and Jesus Christ, that, that holy son of God who had never once sinned, who had never once been separated from God, who had never once experienced death, experienced spiritual death for us, paid that price for us so that we might experience life. He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he taught how it is that a person could receive this gift, and it is a gift. I can't earn it. I can't work for it. Ephesians tells me, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I can't work my way to God. I can't be good enough for God because I've already sinned. I've already incurred the, the, the debt. But Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So when Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he rose again the third day, he secured for us salvation. He secured for us forgiveness. But like any gift, a gift has to be received. If I were to hold out a gift to you and it's paid for and it's got your name in it and I were to say, this is for you, you can have it. You were to look at it and say, oh, that's for me. That's a gift. That's wonderful. And to walk away, you left out those back doors with me still holding it. Well, it may have been purchased for you. It may have your name written in it. You may never have to pay me back for it, but if you don't take it, it's not yours. You have to accept it. Accept it by grace through faith. Recognizing. The Bible describes it in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, as repentance from dead works and faith toward God. A recognition that there is nothing in myself that I can do to be right with God, but that Jesus Christ has done it all. And so to place my full faith and trust in what Jesus has already done, to save me from my sins. Jesus died for you. You cannot save yourself, but if you will accept what Jesus did for you on the cross, the Bible says he will give you the gift of eternal life. So Jesus is speaking to those who have this gift of eternal life. And the beautiful words that he speaks to those who have this gift. Let not your hearts be troubled. Those are special words. Jesus would use this phrase two times in, the book of, in, in John 14. Here he establishes this promise, let not your heart be troubled. And later he would establish the proof of his promise. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. You believe the Father's promises, believe my promises too. What is this promise? Jesus makes this appeal to trust him. Well, that's interesting. Sounds simple, perhaps in a trite way. Why would those who have chosen to follow Jesus not have an intrinsic trust in his words? Is it possible even to be a follower of Jesus and not trust all of his words? Well, I'll leave that to you to answer in your own heart, but I can tell you this and as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I struggle to trust Jesus' words sometimes. Jesus appeals first to trust him. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. You've recognized the words of the Father. You've accepted me as the Messiah from God. Now accept some things from me. And the words he wants us to trust are these. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. The thing Jesus felt compelled to tell his followers, lest their hearts be troubled, is that in his father's house, the house of his father, is equipped with many abiding places. The word used in our King James is mansions. Uh, the word back in 1769 simply meant a place of residence, a place of dwelling, an abiding place. It did not mean, as it does now, a large palatial estate, per se. And in this case, notice that mansions are a part of the father's house a part of the Father's abode. The concept here is not that they are, in a physical and earthly sense, tremendous palaces littered among the estate of God. Although, if you'd like to think of it that way, 
I, I'm not going to argue with you on the point. But the idea it was likely connected significantly more in the minds of those who Jesus was talking to, to the nature of the Jewish sense of family. That when a son came of age and he found a wife, his first order of business would be to build a living place, build an abode that was attached to his father's house, adjoining his father's house on, on the family land. This abode would become a separate living place, but it would be a part of the whole house complex. And this would likely be more the idea of what Jesus is picturing here, that the house of God is a house that is built and intended to accommodate many people for fellowship and abiding. The family of God residing together. The father is not a recluse. He desires and indeed has intended, he has designed eternity to be a place of fellowship and abiding with him. So Jesus gives us this wonderful promise and assures us that if it were not so, if, if, if in his father's house there were not many mansions, if it was not so that there was a place for, for those who have followed Christ to be, he says, I, I would have told you that. Then verse 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, Uh, excuse me, the end of uh, verse 2, he said, um, it's not here, but he said at the end of verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to pre prepare a place for you, verse 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So Jesus connects the abode of his Father to himself, and he says what he's saying in order to prepare them for his departure, something that they would not expect even with all of his warnings and about which they would not understand for some days after. Jesus is about to leave them. He does not want them to be troubled. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in that I'm going, this is what you can know, because he's not lying to them. If it were not so, he would have told them, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And so these words of assurance that the followers would be able to look back upon at a later time and assure their hearts before God that in the house of, their, of, of the Father of Christ is there are many mansions and that Jesus is going unto his Father, but he is coming back again. And with that assurance established that if indeed Jesus was going to prepare a place for them, he would come again, they would have hope. And this hope would bring to them a peace. Their hearts would not be troubled. They could be assured before God that where Jesus is, there we will be also. And this is exactly what we find in the eyewitness accounts. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins, as we talked about. He was buried. The third day, he rose again from the grave. And so we read in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Luke writing here, he says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining unto the kingdom of God. Skipping to verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
Jesus arose from the dead, and for the next 40 days, he would appear unto his disciples, and he would teach them all the things that he wanted them to know. At the end of which, as he said he would do, he was taken up to be with the Father. He ascended unto the Father out of their sight to sit on the right hand of the throne of God, and lest there be any doubt that these events were the promise of which Jesus spoke. We continue reading in verses 10 and 11 of Acts chapter 1, and this is what we find. And when they looked steadfastly toward heaven, excuse me, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Christian Jesus is coming again. He promised it. And he said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Then the disciples observe. They watch him as he ascends into heaven. And as they're staring into the clouds, two men in white raiment appear and say, why are you staring into the clouds? He will come again. And he'll come in the manner, in like manner as to the way he departed. Through the clouds, ascending, descending onto this earth. That where he is, there we may be also. One last thing before we move past this point. I mentioned in John 14 that the phrase, let not your heart be troubled, is used two times. First, when Jesus spoke of this promise to return. And second, when Jesus spoke of the proof of this promised return. We have an eyewitness account. We have many eyewitness accounts that confirm that Jesus arose from the dead that he ascended into heaven. They heard the voice of the men in white raiment saying he was coming back again. We read it from the, the lips of Jesus Christ himself, but we also have something else and something which by Jesus' own admission is so much more authoritative than just eyewitness accounts, so much more authoritative than even the words that we read in the scriptures as it relates to assuring our hearts of Jesus' return. So we continue reading in John 14, verses 25 through 28. Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. There it is. Neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father for my Father is greater than I. He continues. He continues to say that it is expedient that he would go away for if he does not go away, then the Comforter cannot come. And the Comforter is essential. The Comforter is great. The Comforter who is, according to this passage, the Holy Ghost. Jesus promised that this Comforter would come and would teach us of all things. This Comforter would come and bring to remembrance those things that Jesus has said. That Comforter would come and give us peace and assure our hearts before God. The Spirit of God, which Ephesians calls the earnest of our inheritance. That word earnest literally meaning a down payment. When I am going to pay for something and it's very large, I may not have all the money to give on that very day, so I will give an earnest payment. I will give a down payment. I will give a portion of the whole, assuring the person who's receiving that money that the rest is going to come because they're going to get 
every, they're going to get to keep my down payment and get the, the product back if I don't give them the rest of the money. So this is what we call a down payment or what is called an earnest payment. Ephesians calls the Holy Spirit of God the earnest of our salvation. When you see the working of the Spirit of God within you, when you feel the peace of the Spirit of God, when you recognize that peace that passes all understanding, when you see the nature of the Spirit of God ministering through you, when you understand the Scriptures and you know that the Spirit of God is teaching you, this is a earnest, a promise. This is the shadow of that which is to come. It is, it, it is an indication to you that the rest is coming. We have every confidence of the Lord's sure return. We have confidence because he told us he would return. We have confidence because hundreds of witnesses have recognized his ascension and, and heard his promises of return. We have confidence because the Holy Spirit, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession indwells us. And every time we see him working, every time we feel that peace, we can be reminded that Christ is coming again, that he left us his spirit to occupy until he returns. So make no mistake, Christian, Jesus is coming again. Second, Jesus is coming quickly. Now, this has always been a strange promise because when we think of the idea of something coming quickly, we relate that to our perception of time. So that quickly is something that when perceived almost inevitably through the lens of our own experiences uh, becomes something that we would expect to happen very, very soon on our timetable. And this can be different naturally to different people. If I'm asked to wait an hour for something, I might see this as a, reasonable, a reasonably small amount of time. And yet, if I ask one of my children to wait an hour for something, my children having lived significantly less life and understanding time in a little bit of a different way than I do, uh, based upon their season of life, an hour might be interminable to them. Now, it's the same ticking of the clock. It's 60 minutes either way. But our perception of time is going to be quite different relative to our station in life, how long we've lived, the nature of what we're waiting for. If it's, you have to wait an hour before something good sh will happen, then, oh, it's forever. If it's something bad's going to happen in an hour, then, oh, that's it? That's all the time I've got, right? And so time is, in that sense, relative as it relates to our perception. But in reality, time is time. Time is a constant. But our perception of time is extremely relative. So we have these unique phrases in our culture. A watched pot never boils. Time flies when you're having fun. And all of these speak to the nature of time being very relative in perception. So when we read the Gospels and Jesus speaks about his sure return, encouraging his followers to watch, for he says, ye know not when the master will come. And more to the point, we read in Revelation chapter 22, three times in fact, Behold, I come quickly. We're tempted to interpret this saying through the lens of our own experiences and jump to a conclusion about what it means. And there are several ways to think about this. First, we can think uh, through this linguistically because, I mean, let's admit it. 
in the scope of our lives and of time as we perceive it, Jesus has not come fast, right? Um, Jesus made these promises 2,000 years ago. That's not very, I'm, that, that's not quick as we would relate it to ourselves. But let's first think about what Jesus is saying here linguistically. Now, linguistically, this word quickly, I come quickly. The idea of the word does not necessarily mean soon in a temporal sense, but rather it means I come without delay or I come suddenly. So I will come quickly. I will come suddenly. When I come, it will be sudden. It will be unexpected. It will be without delay. There's nothing that is going to delay my coming. That God has a plan in place and nothing in heaven or on earth can change God's plan. That God has a time and an hour that is in his mind whereby these things will take place and there is nothing, there's no government, there's no person, there's no institution that will be able to affect God's desired date of return. So that Jesus is warning about the suddenness of his return, about the inevitability of his return. Perhaps also the fact that nothing in heaven or earth can thwart or delay his return. And in this light, not only does this word support such a thing, but let's take a moment to remember the nature of God and time as well. So linguistically, there's not really a problem in the scriptures with the idea, I come quickly. But let's also remember how God views time. We as humans are bound by time. There's some interesting stuff happening today in science with the nature of how science is trying to understand time and not in real science, not the pseudo-political science. Whereas humanity has always seen time as a one-way flow, there are various things in the world of physics that lend themselves to the idea that time is not just a perception, but time is an actual thing, an actual dimension in this world, and could, in theory, be manipulated. And this would not necessarily surprise us that, in theory, this could be, that the math and physics would actually support such an idea. Because time like everything else as we understand it, is created. It's a created entity. And that there is an entire realm that is completely real, as real as the chairs you're sitting in, as real as, as we are here today. There is an entire realm, the spirit realm, that is unbound by time. Meaning that time is not just a reckoning of existence, but something real and something tangible, something with a concrete beginning, a concrete ending, and something that you can actually exist outside of, as the angels do. But you and I don't operate this way, do we? This is not how time relates to us because we are built into time. Those who are in the system of time are bound by time. We are bound to live in a particular moment of time. We are bound to operate within the bounds of time. We are unable to cheat time, to reverse time, to undo time. I cannot go back in time. Time is a commodity, and it's a, it is a commodity that is being expended, that every second that ticks by is a second that you do not get back. A limited resource. That's time to us who are bound by time. Now, the immaterial part of me is eternal. That part does not age. That part is not bound by time, except it is bound into this body that is bound by time. So every second I live is a second I can never have back, and I only have a set amount of that currency, and how much 
only God knows. But this is not God, is it? God is not this way. God is the creator of time. God is unbound by time. He stands above time, seeing the end and the beginning in the same moment. God is in this moment at the creation of the world on one end and at the consummation of the world in the other, and he sees it all laying before him at the same point because he is not bound by time. All of these things are happening, and God recognizes that they're happening in a temporal way, but he is not bound by that, so he is looking at it all and weaving it together according to his good pleasure. So when God speaks of coming quickly, instead of perhaps interpreting it as, as I would interpret it being bound by time, God is not necessarily referencing this concept in relation to how soon these things are going to happen, but rather in relation to how sure and definitive it is that God's sequence of events will take place. We see this not just as it relates to philosophy, but we can even see this in the Bible. If we go back to the 70 weeks that Daniel sees, the 70 weeks of Israel, we see uniquenesses as it relates to how God presents time. God presents those weeks, and yet each of those weeks is representative of seven years. And so those 70 weeks are actually representative prophetically as of 490 years. And we see the first 483 of those years presented consecutively, one right after another. But at the end of the 483rd year, the 484th year has not happened yet. The 483rd year ended with Messiah being killed, the crucifixion, somewhere around there. The 484th year has not happened yet because God looks at time and he sees a series of events. And we're still waiting for years 484 through 490 to happen, according to the scriptures. We also see these uniquenesses uh, in, in other places in the scriptures we've talked about before. And so when God says, when Jesus says, behold, I come quickly, it is not intended for us to interpret that as a measure of temporal expedience. It's intended rather to be interpreted as a measure of surety and suddenness. God has not given us enough information to know when these things will come to pass. And in fact, this is not an omission on God's part. This is a design on God's part. So that in Acts chapter 1, we've been there already, just before Jesus' ascension, we see an exchange between him and his followers. Verses 6 and 7, the Bible says this. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, they, uh, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Christian, it's not for us to know the times or the seasons. We can see the signs. We can look for the marks. We cannot know the time of the hour. And it could certainly come at any time. I don't know of a generation of the church. There, isn't, there has not been a generation of the church that I'm aware of, as far as my reading is concerned, that has not been convinced that Jesus would come in their day, and rightfully so. For in every generation of the world, the world is corrupting itself more and more. Things are waxing worse and worse, as Paul said it would. Indeed, in Matthew 24, verses, verse 36, Jesus tells us that not only has God 
not revealed to us the day nor the hour, but God has not revealed it even to the angels. And in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus says, not even the Son himself knows the day or the hour. And though this is the case, there is something important about Jesus' coming that that passage in Matthew 24 highlights. Jesus says, you don't know the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven know the day or the hour. But there is something important that we do know. And there's something important that we're called to do about it. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, the Bible says this, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the days, uh, the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Skipping to verse 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. He cometh quickly. And then we get this application. Beginning in verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of. <coughs> Excuse me. And shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No man knows the day nor the hour. But if Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, he will doubtless come again. <coughs> Excuse me. And so it behooves us, since we do not know when the Master will come, to be ready to watch and to be found so doing. <coughs> Got a tickle in my throat here. Um, Karis, would you get me some water? Thank you. It behooves us to be a faithful servant so that the Father may appoint unto us authority over all of his goods, lest we take the truths of Christ lightly. And though we know them, we fail to believe them, and we receive the just recompense of our hearts of unbelief, either unto damnation for those who have failed to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God, or unto tremendous loss before the throne of God on the judgment seat of Christ. And this leads us to our final point this morning. First, Jesus is coming again. Second, Jesus is coming quickly. Third and finally, Jesus is coming in truth. <clears throat> We see this idea all throughout the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is the point into which we're coming today, right? Jesus is coming in truth. That as the wrath of God is poured out 
injustice upon the unbelieving world, and as the prayers of the saints for vengeance are being meted upon all unrighteousness, and as the saints themselves are being delivered into everlasting life, we read time and again, such as in Revelations 15, verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. And we read in Revelation 16, verse 7, And I heard an, uh, another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Thank you, Cars. And again in Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened and beheld a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And we are reminded why it is that truth matters so much to us. We are reminded why it is that we as believers look out at this world and we see the lies and the deceits and we are so deeply troubled. We are, that we see the injustices that are around us and we are deeply troubled. We are deeply troubled because truth is what we have. And there is coming a day when Jesus will come and will judge the world in truth. And all of those who live in opposition to the truth of the gospel, all of those who live for the kingdoms of this world, when indeed those kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God, they will be judged accordingly and have their part, as the Bible says, in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. And Revelation 21 verse 8 calls this the second death. We talk about life, and then we talk about being born again, eternal life, newness of life. And this is a second life. This is a fullness of life. This is a life that does not end. And then we talk about death. And the Bible speaks of death twice. There's physical death. And then there's the second death, the eternal separation from the life that is in God. And so Jesus came first time in humility born to reflect the nature of God, born to show humility to the world. And then he died on the cross and he rose again to offer us forgiveness. And when he comes again, he's coming in truth. Now this has been a very strange year. And we live under a great deal of unknowns at this time. We have the past, however, to inform us of the future. And we do so in any number of places in life, right? We look to the past to inform us of the future as it relates to ideologies, philosophies, politics. Let us also use the past to inform us of the future as it relates to the spiritual. There was a day 2,000 years ago when the Son of God came in flesh, born in humility and conformity to the will of the Father, died on the cross in fulfillment to the will of the Father. And the will of the Father also dictates that as he left, so too he would come again. That he is coming in God's perfect timing. Jesus Christ is coming. 
this time in which no man nor angel knows, a time which will be at the end of God's perfect and sovereign weaving together of the times and seasons of history, our Lord will return. Surely he comes quickly and his rewards are with him. And Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will doubtless come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Rest is coming, Christian. And if God be for us, who can be against us? And if the end is that said glory, then my heart need not be troubled. What have I to fear? So instead, let's stay busy. Instead, let's stick to the work. The world, they're running around, scurrying around, doing their thing. Hopeless, no expectation of heaven. Fearful, no rest in the Lord. No peace that passes all understanding. But this is not us. Now, we live in this world. We're affected by viruses, and we have to deal with the, the nature of political choices. We, we know that, but this is not our home. This is not our end. This is our journey to pass through on our way to our home. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Instead, be a wise and a faithful servant, whom... When his Lord comes, because he's coming, and he's coming quickly, our Lord will find so doing. Trust to hope, because your hope is not in man, but in the Lord who gave himself for you. Enter into 2021 with confidence. Not that societies and governments and cultures will figure themselves out. They're blind leaders of the blind. Not that inevitably we can flick our snap our fingers and all illnesses go away. Life doesn't work that way. But that your God knows, your God loves you, your God has gone to prepare a place for you, and if he has done that, he will doubtless come again and receive you unto himself. And in the meantime, we do what Jesus told us to do. Be a faithful servant who, when his master comes, his master will find him so doing. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.